They say politics is the art of the possible. Throughout time, throughout history, politics has always been. And it's easy in the era we're looking at, the 12th century, to see politics as purely the actions, passions, likes and dislikes of the great and mighty kings of the age. By their hand do wars begin, and by their hand are battles raged, and by their hand do men die. But politics is often a subtle art, a smaller art. It's a game of looking for circumstances to play an advantage. In the 12th century, there was no democracy, but politics was alive and well. Men, and occasionally women, would dance the great dance of power and influence, of deals and of negotiations. Transactions carried out at the most basic level. What do you need? And what will you grant me if I help you get this thing? If you played the game correctly, you could gain a massive advantage to yourself. And if you failed, however, you could very well die. Politics in the 12th century was, by all accounts, a blood sport, a high-stakes game of risk and calculation. And it wasn't just an English thing. Across Europe, across France, and across today's Italy and Spain and today's Germany, and all the way to the Middle East, politics was being played out not on a grand scale, but in the subtle games of lesser men, just as often as they were being played by the kings and emperors of this continent. And in the 12th century, you watched other players. You watched other players constantly, always seeing if their plans successfully elevated them to positions of authority, or if their plans got them killed. Politics was indeed the art of the possible, a lethal game of consequences where, yes, anything could be taken if you dared risk it. And we know London was taking risks, because out of nowhere... London got its first mayor. But the circumstances about how London got its first mayor were confusing. We know the mayor arrived sometime between 1189 and 1194. We also know that London gained commune status sometime between 1189 and 1191. And we know that some kind of big change took place in how the sheriffs of London worked, again, between the years 1189 and 1191. And while this was happening at the same time, as we've covered in previous chapters, other things took place between those three years. The arrival of the Queen Mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine in London, to claim it in the name of her son. The subsequent elevation and coronation of King Richard I. The conflicts between his Chancellor of England, William Longchamp, and Bishop Walter of Rouen, the troubleshooter sent to keep an eye on Longchamp, and the king's brother, Prince John. And, of course, the actions of King Richard while he was on crusade, all of these took place between the years 1189 and 1191. And we have to take on board that the city had actually, during this time, turned in upon itself, and the loyal and dutiful Jewish citizens had been slaughtered on the streets of the city before fleeing to the Tower of London, which had subsequently been expanded under the Chancellor's orders, also between 1189 and 1191. There was a heck of a lot going on, and every part of these events played a role in the changes to London during this time frame. So what exactly was happening in London at the time 
And can we piece together the clues to construct a realistic and coherent argument to explain it all away? Well, I certainly hope so. Hi, my name is Saul, and I'm your host and narrator to this, The Story of London, an epic series dedicated to telling the history of the city. And if you were to play from the very first episode non-stop, this story is now over 48 hours long, two full days of the tale of the city and its residents and its history. We have reached the year 1191, and it's now to look at everything that had been happening before and to try and place it into context. What was going on in London? What were those oligarchs up to behind closed doors? Let's find out, shall we? Welcome to Chapter 77 of the Story of London. The London Podesta. The opening question that drove me when I wrote this episode was a simple one. When did the mayor position in London begin? What year did the first mayor appear? Now, the Corporation of London, who would be experts in all things in London's history, maintained the first mayor appeared in the year 1190 or so, and that works. However, there's a lot of detail that maybe throws that date a little bit into question. What kind of detail? Well, to grasp that, we need to ask another separate question first. And that question is, when did the idea of a mayor even come from? To get to the origin of the office of mayor, we have to almost forget all our modern thinking about what the term means. I mean, over the centuries, the mayors of the big cities of the world with their sweeping metropolitan powers could give us a very wrong impression about what a mayor was. Added to that, in the nearly a thousand years since the post was started, the position in London was to gain a bunch of extra and additional duties. Today, the position is known as the Lord Mayor of London. And the Lord Mayor of London is a separate person with separate roles to the Mayor of London. And neither of these positions match that of the First Mayor of London. Confusing? Yeah, it can be. So this is why we kind of need to forget everything we think we know about the title and go back to basics. In the 12th century context, what was a mayor? Well, at the time, the title was paradoxically both very old and also newfangled. Literally, it meant the chief or headman of a community. The title had been used to describe everything from grand viziers of the ancient Merovingian kings of the Frankish kingdoms, the mayors of the palace, to the much more humble headman of a village community, the mayor of the ville. The variety of use in France by the 12th century is quite bewildering. A mayor, mayor, could be a great man of the world or the estate officer of a tiny rural community, Often, especially in ancient times, he was the Lord's representative, an official, a man of the establishment. But by the 12th century, he could be the chairman of a city oligarchy or the head of a commune. Now, added to the term mayor, there was another word being used at the time in the north of France and in Flanders, to which the English town folks looked to their 
immediate ideas for their own experiments in civic freedom or reform. The managing groups of officials or citizens were called Eshevins. Now, I do not have the language skills, nor do I wish to inflict upon you the sheer complexity of the full meaning of that word over history. So I'm going to foolishly, perhaps, simplify the next bit and just say that Eshevins were in origin estate officials converted into city fathers. Oligarchs, basically. Legal, administrative, and in their own way, political leaders in their communities. In many cases, especially in the north and west of France, the Eshevins either became or were the first recorded appearance of urban civic officials, respectable in the eyes of both the commune as well as of their commune's feudal overlord. In Flanders, the development and use of the word mayor was somewhat more complex, but it was in the pocket of the ideas that were originating in France, with the exception that in Flanders, the position of mayor was from its first appearance the head of a local commune rather than any kind of royal official. And basically, all I need to convey to you is that the word and concepts of mayor and Eschevins were a thing in later 12th century France and Flanders. As long as you got that, we're good to carry on. We first meet a working mayor and Eschevins in the capital of Normandy, Rouen, in the 1170s. Here the mayor is clearly respectable, both in the eyes of his overlord, Henry II, Duke of Normandy and King of England, and in his colleagues, the citizens of Rouen itself. He's the man to whom the oath of the commune is made. And the oath is important. The commune of Rouen was basically a sworn confederation, a sworn conspiracy to its enemies, and a sworn gathering of friends and colleagues to those behind its walls. As we covered earlier in the story, especially chapter 62, the term commune had sprung up in every part of Europe in the 11th and 12th centuries. What was becoming apparent was that both in Italy and in parts of France in the second half of the 12th century was the feeling that a single magistrate should be regarded as a necessary president or umpire or ruler of that commune. It's worth saying as well that in the south of France and moving into Italy, the term mayor was not used. Here the term that was mostly used to describe this official in charge of the commune was podesta. The word seemed to have been a derivative of the Latin word potestas, the power, the authority. In numerous Italian compounds of north and central Italy in the 1150s and 1160s, such independent governments as the citizens had managed to establish lay primarily in the hands of groups of consuls, their word for uh, Eskivins, and these soon came under the single magistrate or leader who originally seemed to hold titles like rector, but eventually the title podestra seems to have won out in those regions. And there is more to it than that, and I could include a whole discussion that actually what made the term podestra more common during this era were the actions of the incredibly powerful ruler of the Holy Roman Empire, um, Frederick Barbarossa. He appointed podestras as imperial representatives in several cities, but it's complicated enough already. And the reason I'm stressing all these European links is to emphasize that all these things happening in northern France and Flanders and in the Italian peninsula were being noted and observed in London. Yes, we can say with some authority that the towns of northern France and Flanders were closer to London than Genoa or Bologna, and it is to the north of France that we shall find the immediate source of the title and function of the mayor as London was to understand it. 
But it would be quite false, however, to suppose that the citizens of London in the late 12th century had a narrow horizon bounded only by the frontiers of Normandy. This was a cosmopolitan age in which the natives of England did feel part of the wider world. Of course they did. Their king, Richard, had spent his reign so far settling affairs in Sicily, Cyprus and Jerusalem. He's going to go on to become a prisoner in Germany and then wage war in France. Back in chapter 74, I had covered the arrivals of high-profile international figures to the city, including the Patriarch of Jerusalem, a man living literally at the opposite end of the accessible world, and his consecration of local churches there in London. London felt part of the wider world always. But London's link to Europe extended beyond foreign visitors and merchants. I mean, for example, in and around the year 1189, the year of King Richard's accession, there died in the region around St. Paul's a canon of some intellectual pretension, a man called Master David of London. Back in the 1160s, he'd been a student and then become a doctor at the University of Bologna. And in that period of his life, he had acted as a guardian to other English students there, including two of the archdeacons of the Diocese of London. Through the precincts of St. Paul's Cathedral flowed men who knew France and Italy well. Several of the canons of Holy Trinity had studied abroad, and a historian would be hard-pressed to insist that Thomas Becket was the only citizen of London to have studied at the universities of Paris and Bologna. In fact, as we will cover in future chapters, the merchants of London were slowly beginning to recover from the terrible blows inflicted upon the city's economy by the Danish and Norman invasions, something I detailed in depth back in chapter 52 of the story. And they'd now begun to return to European travel. London-based merchants now lived in small diasporan communities across Europe. Which basically means, while there is no evidence in document to suggest that the men of London who would go on to make the Commune of London had any direct links to the continent, it would be absurd to suggest they were not aware of these developments taking place in France and in Italy and of the political changes taking place in urban centres across Europe, especially in regards to how urban communities were being organised. If the rest of Europe was seeing the need for large towns to have podestras, shouldn't London get in on that hot pedestrian action? So, in the years leading up to 1189, you had certain things happening across Europe. The early commune movement, which had been about the pressures of urbanisation, forcing reconciliations of power between feudal structures and urban necessity, had seen the growth of the earliest communes. This, in turn, had led to the creation of certain classes of citizens, consuls in Italy, échevins in France, within whom political power seems to have been started to gravitate towards. At the same time, two forces seem to have been driving those bodies towards having a centralised figure to be in charge in some way. Either the need for increasingly powerful monarchs to have someone they could trust to be in charge, who was also acceptable to the Eshevins, or because the communes themselves were prone to instability and civil strife. Thus you see a wave of pedestres, mayors as they were known in Normandy and Flanders, begin to arise and spread in growing numbers. And we can actually see evidence of the transmission of ideas taking place in Europe, how they were literally spreading north. The first known pedestal was established in Lombardy around the 1130s. 
Now, it's not impossible that the institution is somewhat older than that, but we have no documentary evidence to prove it. Now, the earliest known mayor in the context we're talking about appears briefly in Soissons in 1136. The next of which we have documentary witness of are in Rouen and La Rochelle in the mid-1170s, spreading north, you see. It does appear that the mayor of Rouen was the first Norman mayor, the first in the Angevin Empire, and that his colleague in La Rochelle was appointed in direct imitation of Rouen. And it's evident that the, the liberties of La Rochelle, which were then copied by the town of Pouton, had been imitations of the liberties granted to Rouen. <sighs> the date, by the way, suggests that Henry's charter to create a mayor in 1174 to 75 was like the charter he gave to La Rochelle, a reward for loyalty and aid in the Great Rebellion, um, which we covered back in chapter 73. Now, the thing is, Rouen had actually received recognition of its commune status decades earlier. Back during the anarchy, when Henry's father, Duke Geoffrey of Anjou, conquered Normandy, he'd made a treaty with the citizens around 1144 or so, and his son Henry, the future Henry II, had confirmed this status, as he really didn't want to worry about Rouen, he was just focusing on claiming England around 1150, and then in the 1170s, we now have a man called Bartholomew Fergant named as the Mayor of Rouen. So Rouen had gained commune status after London had gained it, but they had that status given to them by the winning side. And London had not only backed the losing side, they had previously tried to lay hands on the winning side's mother. So, yeah, this is why they had better advantages than London did. I will say, at first sight, it must seem strange that the title mayor spread in the territories of two of the strongest monarchies of the late 12th century, both those of Henry II and his sons and those of Philip II Augustus, the King of France. The answer to why this happened, however, may be found in the use of the word mayor itself. You see, both dynasties had been impressed by the need, so clearly shown in Frederick Barbarossa's adventures in Italy, for a clearly defined power, a stable authority, with whom to deal in handling the affairs of their cities. Yet, using a title like Podesta carried with it the shades of the great liberties and factional politics of those Italian cities. In the context of the 12th century, Mayor had a pleasant ambiguity about it. For what could be more modest than to suggest the head of the Commune of Rouen, or of the City of London, was a peasant patriarch, equivalent in standing to the headman of a village? I think this is why the French custom of calling civic leaders Mayor really came into vogue. There is, however, additional evidence to show that there was great variety in the status of mayor in northern France. Some were mayors by election. Others seemed to have the office for life, which could well have become hereditary, or at least the mayor might hope to designate their successor. In some places, the mayor was securely a sole magistrate. In others, there was a pair of them. The varieties of election and appointment survived for many generations, and in fact, only in England did the tradition soon become established that mayors should be annually elected. But even this was not established until some years had passed after the death of the first mayor in 1212. So from London's point of view, they could look at the liberties Rouen's had and feel a sense of grievance. 
London had also stood by King Henry II loyally during the Great Revolt of 1173 and 74, to the point where it seemed the citizens had prevented the revolt by men who ruled two of her three castles. But all they got from that was a two-year reduction in the amount of tax they paid to King Henry II. Rouen got way more benefit out of its loyalty than London ever did. So when 1189 rolled into 1190 and 1191, and the nation find itself in a moment of political turmoil, it was to me then highly likely that the wily oligarchs of London, the city's very own Eschkevins, saw an opportunity to negotiate more lasting gains for the city. The citizens of London were able to bargain and bribe once more. A nation on the verge of a civil war and the king's long absence gave the government a strong incentive for accepting any reasonable settlement. And it wasn't just about establishing a mayor. It was also to do with the tax bill. And when it comes to the tax bill of London, we need to look at it much more closely because between the years 1189 and 1191, something deeply profound happened in London regarding that and it needs to be examined. You see, as I've mentioned numerous times in the podcast, previous to this era, London was run by its oligarchs through the office of the sheriff of the city. The sheriffs were the men who were responsible for the collection and payment of something known as the farm or the firm, the taxes given to the crown by the city. This form of civic government was known as the chevralty. In the years leading up to the death of King Henry II, the normal situation was for the chevralty to be in the hands of one or more of a group of men with a strong stake in the city. As we mentioned all the way back in chapter 67, under Henry II, there seemed to have been a tweaking and adjustment going on almost constantly, with the king experimenting with different systems of who should be sheriff and for how long. Many sheriffs lasted only a year, but some lasted for as much as seven years at a time. However, with the elevation of King Richard I, everything changed dramatically from 1190 and for the next 30 years. A new pattern emerges. It is in the reign of Richard that the tradition began that there should always be two sheriffs of London, never more or never less. This generational change saw something else happen. It became very rare for any sheriff to hold the office more than once. Now when you look at the list of sheriffs for the next 30 years, it still reads like a who's who of the city patriarchs, those great and terrible men whose inner workings we started to look back and discuss all the way back in chapter 63, but whose influence had gone back even further. Because you see in the list of sheriffs the likes of William of Haverhill, John Bocante, Nicholas Ducat, Peter son of Nullion, Roger de Luc or Roger Fitzalan, we can say the Sheriff of London, or now the dual Sheriffs of London, were in this new era still coming from the same small oligarch class of Londoners. But from that list, we know only Nicholas Ducat alone occurs twice. Basically, it's clear that it was agreed that a new tradition should begin, that the Sheriffs of London, the Office of Sheriff, should rotate amongst the leading city fathers, but once and done. And why the change? Well, we have some clues. The pipe roll for the year 1190 says, quote, The citizens of London, William of Haverhill and John Bacanti for them, render account of £300 blank for this year, unquote. Now this is significant. So here we see the farm for London is set at £300. 
go back a couple of years when Henry II was still in charge, it'd been between roughly 520 and 530 pounds a year. So the farm had been cut a significant reduction. And that amount, by the way, had been the amount agreed upon in the charter given back by Henry I, which we covered all the way back in chapter 61. So some kind of long-term tax deal was negotiated, clearly, based on London, arguing that they were a near 60-year agreement they wanted to be implemented going forward. London had clearly won that round of negotiation. As for why the responsibility for being sheriff was now shared between two men, well, I've read some historians suggest that the sheriffs gained yearly stipend and salary, so this way the oligarchs could share out the benefits of the dignity and eminence of the position without anybody hoarding it. That's true, but I've also read other historians suggest that the responsibility was such a chore that people rotated it so to spread the burden and responsibility. Could be either way, or a mixture of both. But something had changed, something drastic. The entire structure of the way the City of London ran itself is changing. This wasn't a small thing, it was huge. And the return to the tax farm being £300 wasn't just for show. The last time it had been that low was when the city had thrown its weight behind King Stephen, and as well as the lower tax bill, they'd been granted commune status. So one kind of alerts us to the other happening. To return then to our intent of trying to work out the exact timeline of events as best we can, what do we have that we can prove from the written evidence? The tax reduction and the twin sheriff change seems to have begun at Michaelmas 1190. The commune status may have been granted in 1189 or 1190, but we have our first written proof of its existence in October 1191. And the mayor first appears as titled as such in writing in 1193. Now, the precise timings are a source of much scholarly debate, to put it mildly. But that debate has thrown up some interesting facts. For example, we have a copy of the oath of the Commune of London to King Richard. It was recorded when Richard was a prisoner in Germany. And yes... When we last left Richard, he was recovering from malaria in Jaffa last chapter, and I will tell how he became a prisoner in Germany at a future episode. But the oath the commune swore to him said that the London commune, quote, will bear faith to their Lord King Richard for his life and limbs and earthly honour, unquote, and that, quote, they will preserve his peace and help to preserve it, that they will keep the commune, and be obedient to the mayor of the city of London and to the Eshevins of the same commune in faith to their king, that they will follow and keep the decisions of the mayor and the Eshevins and other good men, unquote. And this is why I went on about the origins of those concepts earlier on, because it's obvious here now that the model London was building upon was a model from Rouen. And we can prove that because of the use of the word Eshevins, which had not appeared in any London record before the 1190s. What we would call oligarchs. They now had a title suitable for their position. The Eshevins of London. It is important to note that the oath also does not mention any of the other traditional royal positions that always appeared in charters and stuff like that. 
No mention of justices or justicars, of chancellors, and above all, the sheriffs are not mentioned. They do not get a say in how the city was to be run. According to this oath, the new commune staters of London, they truly ran themselves. It only mentions the mayor and the Eshevins. Of course, these other officers are still part of the city. The oath did say the commune, quote, follow and keep the decisions of the mayor and Eshevins and other good men, unquote. And the the actual use of the word good men, the Latin term used at the end was pro by hominis, good men or honest people. And it does allude to the non-mentioned officers, such as the state officials, being given a bit of a nod here. They're not formally in the structure of the commune, but yeah, we'll respect them. So the commune was London being truly free under a new form of civil government. We can date the first mention of the communer of the citizens of London to the inquest and trial, which has been overseen by Archbishop Walter of Rouen, which we mentioned last chapter, even if we do not have any documentary evidence of it being given. And that inquest and trial was held in 1191, the same year Prince John turns up and London sided with him against Longchamp. And I think we can, studying the pipe rolls of England and begin to piece some timeline of events. So, this is what I think actually happened. In 1173, Henry II is hit by his great political crisis. London, like Rouen, stayed loyal and true to Henry II. The year after, we see both towns get rewarded by Henry II. Both see a large reduction in the tax bill to the state, their farm. Rouen also gets its Eshevins recognised and a mayor appointed to build upon its already existing status as a commune. London not only doesn't get that, but the farm returns to its incredibly high amount after only a couple of years. When Henry II dies, his son Richard takes the throne. As I mentioned a couple of chapters ago, Richard simply wanted from England the cash they could give him so he could go on crusade. Every post and privilege was up for sale at an inflated price, and as I said, he reportedly claimed he would sell London if he could have found a buyer. We know from the study of the first couple of years of Richard's reign, the London tax bill had stayed between 520 and 530 pounds. But in the role of two years later, 1191, we suddenly see the entry say that there are two sheriffs now bringing 300 pounds and that figure was to remain in place for at least a decade. In short, I believe it is the crisis of 1191 with King Richard in the Holy Land and the ineptitudes of William Longchamp driving the country to a crisis that I think London was able to feel bold enough and in a strong enough position that those oligarchs were able to drive a hard bargain. The bargain I think they struck was the informal recognition by the officers of the state that there was to be a change. The sheriffs of London were to become a ceremonial position from now on, rotated between two of the city's loyal oligarchs. They would pay the state £300 a year, the amount the city had negotiated out of King Henry I all those years ago. At the same time, the powers that be, so Prince John and the Archbishop of Rouen, Walter, would recognise that London could be a commune, just like Rouen, with the affairs of the city being run by the Eshevins of London themselves. Now the thing is, while this was agreed, it wasn't fully agreed. The king himself had not signed off on it, but he would. In a few years' time, in 1195, London would make the crown a one-off payment 
of £1,000 during the second era when Richard was literally selling off anything he could lay his hands on. For me, this payment in 1195 of £1,000 followed about three years later when London paid his successor, King John, off £2,000. Is London buying royal confirmation of the deal they negotiated in 1191? This then is the sum total of our knowledge. A commune was granted to London in October of 1191. The firm of the city simultaneously was reduced to the old £300. And since one of the principal people who could agree to this in 1191 was Walter, Archbishop of Rouen, it feels to me that if he was granting commune status to London based on the commune status he knew himself in Rouen, then, with all things being equal, those Eschevins would simply need a podestra. And so a pedestra was created, the mayor of London, who we have documentary proof of existing in the spring of 1193, but probably comes from the 1191 deal. With all this in mind, I believe we can say that London was not granted these things like a gift from on high. This is a result of the agency of the rich men of London, the oligarchs, the Eschevins of the city wrought this from the state. They had seen how, under Henry II, London had become a great money pit, as we covered back in chapter 68. The combination of Flemish bankers and moneylenders, the growing Jewish community and the 45 precincts of the compound of the Knights Templar had made London increasingly a financial capital of the land building upon its monetary role as one of the principal coin-making locations of old. The Eschevins had seen how Henry II had began to emphasise the importance of the duties of the Chancellor of England, starting with Thomas Becket, the city's martyred saint, but beyond that, how more and more royal duties were now being reduced to functionary tasks being done by the Chancellor's office, and with it the growing importance of the bureaucracy of nearby Westminster. London's nearest neighbour was becoming a growing centre of power and importance. The Eschevins had seen the elevation of a new king who was not really bothered with centralised control. His eyes were entirely upon distant glory in Jerusalem, driven by an impulsive temperament and a ferocious temper. They'd seen the man who had left in charge of England, his chancellor, be arrogant, brash, short-sighted and inept. They'd seen how this chancellor had alienated the whole country against him, how his sister and brother-in-law had very stupidly seized and jailed the Archbishop of York. And they'd seen the Mr. Fixit sent by the king to keep an eye on the chancellor, the Archbishop of Rouen, had turned on the man. These Eschevins had seen the machinations of Prince John, the king's conniving younger brother, as he positioned himself as the opposition to the Chancellor and sought to gain power for himself. They had seen their own citizens turn upon the Jewish community, how the old accord and social equilibrium of London had been destroyed in an orgy of bigotry and pogrom. And these Eschevins had seen how this had forced the reinforcement of the royal garrison of London itself, the White Tower, which was now becoming a ferocious fortress on their doorstep, a permanent erosion of the city's liberties and independence. They had seen all of this, and so they acted, exploiting this to gain the concessions they wished. Inspired by towns and cities across Europe, they had gained commune status, they had reduced their obligations to the crown, and London had gained its own pedestra. And of course, inspired and influenced as they were by Rouen, he was not called pedestra. He was called the Mayor of London. And his name 
was Henry Fitz Aylwin de Londonstone. And he was to hold this position for the next 23 years. So who was this man? The city's first podestra. How did he get this job? Well, it would be fair to say that he must have been, honestly, a genuinely remarkable man. I mean, think about it. He had to be acceptable, not just to the likes of Prince John, later King John, and King Richard, but also all their officers, so the likes of Archbishop Walter, and also to the other oligarchs of London. This suggests, at the very least, Mayor Henry Fitzalwin was blessed with superior diplomatic skills and given his long time in office, a great understanding of politics in order to maintain a firm grip on power for so long. It is, given the time and era, extremely unlikely Fitzalwin was ever elected, even from within that small class of oligarchs, which suggests he simply emerged as the best suited out of the oligarchs of the city. Perhaps he was recognised as pedestrian before being granted any title. Perhaps he was a power in the shadows. Despite his vital and crucial role in London's history, much about Henry Fitzalwin is unknown or uncertain. We know he was born into a well-to-do London family, but his name, however, is English, not Norman. And it tells us he's the son of Aylwin, a name derived from the Saxon name Ethelwine. We know that his father Aylwin's house was one where the Hustings Court was held in the early part of the 12th century. So Henry and Aylwin were both involved in running the city, but these links go back even further. His grandfather was called Leofston, and we suspect he was a Port Reeve of London, and we know he was involved in the foundation of Holy Trinity Priory, which we covered all the way back in chapter 57. In fact, the first mayor's Englishness is quite unique here. Amidst the many oligarchs of London, the first mayor's roots tie back to the time before the Normans. All the way back in chapter 21 of the story of London, I describe how during the reign of King Edgar the Peaceful, St. Dunstan had rededicated and created Westminster Abbey in the form recognisable to us all at this era. During that process, King Edgar had granted to the Abbey five hides of land in a ten-hide region that would become known as Watton. Many years pass. During the reign of Edward the Confessor, this grant to Westminster is confirmed, but it also states that the other five hides of land belonged to one of the king's thanes, a man called Aylwin Horn, who some sources say was also known as Aylwin Child, who is a man who established Bermondsey Abbey all the way back in chapter 51, described then as a Saxon merchant who had been granted the land in Bermondsey by King William the Conqueror. And certainly by 1086, so 20 years after the Norman invasion, Watton is being run by two Anglo-Saxon saints, one called Derman and the other called Alward, who we assume were the sons of Elwyn Child. It appears as if they represented that class of Anglo-Saxons who had survived 
the Norman invasions, the ones who had simply accepted the change in regime, served the new regime loyally, and maintained what they had kept. Now the tale goes that Aylward had died without any children, and then Derman had also died without any children, but his designated heir was his younger brother, Leofston, the Port Reeve of London. So basically what we're saying here is with all the turmoil and conflict that London had faced over the centuries, here was a line of Englishmen who had survived and who bridged the era from the Anglo-Saxon kings over the city now to the era of the early Plantagenets. This was a dynasty whose roots ran marrow deep into the stone streets and sinews of London itself. With such a passage of time, you would imagine that the only way they could survive and become rich during those decades was if, they, uh, if their business was as timeless as the city streets itself. And it seems it was. Mayor Henry was probably a man whose business interests probably centred on the making, finishing and the selling of cloth based on the fact that he was later described as a draper. And it is said he owned a large business premises on Candlewick Street, today's Cannon Street. This property was located close to the London Stone, hence his nickname, Henry Fitzalwin de London Stone. He also had other interests across the city. He owned part of the quayside at London Bridge and properties out towards Portsoken and the east of London. This does mark him as probably one of the city's respectable older English cloth merchants and a keen rival to the Flemish traders at the time who so dominated the English wool trade. It should also be said that Henry and his brother Alan inherited Watton Manor in Hertfordshire and that the mayor held land in Surrey and at Edmonton in Essex and on the Thames in Kent. His London home was adjacent to St. Swithin's Church, of which he was a patron. In all ways, this pedestra of London, the city's first mayor, stands out. He is neither flashy nor famous. His dynasty is older than most of the Norman or even Danish descendants who now lived in the city. His trade a bulwark of the city over the long centuries. He understands the need of export and commerce. He would know the emerging banking sector. He'd been an alderman in 1168, a younger peer to the likes of Thomas Beckett. He was a man of means, from a dynasty that had survived waves of newcomers and innumerable political and societal changes, adapters and survivors. Is it any surprise he was probably a brilliant diplomat and politician? He was the man to lead London into the next 20 years or so of its story. Our first pedestra, the first mayor of London. And we're going to examine exactly what he had to deal with next week in chapter 78 of the story of London. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. And I'll be back next week. Yeah. Bye.